Building Men is brought to you by Finish the Race Apparel, ftrapparel.com, the creators of all things Building Men, and by Become Stronger Industries, become-stronger.com, the creators of handmade steel maces, hammers, and other badass equipment. After the game, your head would just be spinning. Like, I have no idea. There's no pattern. There's no nothing. So what was fun about Major League Baseball, it's the biggest chess match, man. You're facing the best in the world. And every night you're trying to figure out how to how to slice and dice and how to figure these guys out. You're listening to the Building Men Podcast with Dennis and Anthony Miralda, brothers on a mission to help you become the strongest version of yourself mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically. What's up, brother? What's happening? So I'm going to start with a little John Fogarty. Little put me in, coach. I'm, I'm ready to play today. today. What a great song! And so phenomenal song. That um, that song reminds me of growing up playing baseball. And you and I talked about it a couple times. There's this this feeling that you get. One of my favorite feelings, and I could still take myself back and remember. I remember exactly how I felt as a ten year old, a twelve year old. When you'd wake up in the morning, it was a little bit of dew Ugh. on the grass. It was like an April morning. It was the start of the baseball season. It just had – I could put myself way, right into that moment. I mm-hmm. could go back and physically remember everything, the sounds, the smells, the feelings, throwing, you know, playing catch before warming up, before I went out on the hill. That's one of those things that you can go back in your memory. And people that are listening that played baseball growing up, you could – fucking go back to that spot in your life right the smell for me was the most distinct thing like when you go in a freshly cut field and it was the morning and like you said the dew yep on the grass and then it would be like all stars and you're all decked out in your nice uniform and like i was oh you just get such a good vibe and a good feeling and a good energy when you'd be out there it's uh it's one of those things that i will never ever forget and we got connected to um, a guy who I remember, so I played, you know, college baseball, and I, I was such a student of the game for me. You know, I've traveled around. I saw 20-plus different Major League Baseball stadiums. I knew every guy was in the 500 home run club. I could tell you that Babe Ruth batted 342 for his career. I remembered those things. So growing up, I was baseball player, played in college, coached baseball. And the guys that were prevalent in the game at that time, you know, in, in those years for me, as I was playing college baseball and beyond, as I was coaching, I remember watching, and now we have an opportunity to connect with one of the guys that I watched and loved watching, and he was just a badass dude, um, and I remember, so being a Yankee fan, um, you know, you followed, you know, players from other teams, and playing first base for the Yankees was, was it was Donnie Baseball, Don Mattingly was my all-time favorite baseball player, then it was, you know, Tino Martinez, and we didn't know if anybody could ever take up the shoes of uh, of Donnie Baseball, but Tino was, um, you know, won a couple World Series with the Yankees, yeah. so I just, I, I go back to that spot in my life, it, it always brings me joy thinking about it, and so the, the guests that we have today, we were connected, um, and we'll talk about that with him as well, we were talk, we were connected with, with him through Mike DeSanti, and uh, we'll talk about that a little bit too, but um, he played baseball for a couple baseball teams, uh, Major League Baseball for, for over 12 years. Lifetime batting average of 302, and there's only 100 plus guys in the history of Major League Baseball that batted over 300 for their entire career. 
Ty Cobb, I think his batting average was 363. <laughs> I think that was the highest of all time, if I'm yeah. not mistaken. That was the one that your daughter was questioning yeah, you yeah, on one if, time. If I knew it. You um, made sure to get that information. So Lock please down. welcome to the podcast. He is. Uh, he played for Cincinnati Reds for the majority of his career. Um, he is the host of the Mayor's Office podcast, getting into life coaching right now. Please welcome Sean Casey to the podcast. What is up, my man? Yeah, what's up, fellas? Yeah, you, you, you bring back some great memories, too. Same thing with me. As I grew up as a kid, always loving baseball, sleeping with my gloves, sleeping with my bat, you know, always loving the, those Saturday mornings, you know, going to play, uh, you know, in the summer. But uh, Don Mattingly was one of my favorite players, too. I had his poster on my on my wall my whole life. So I think I still have Don Mattingly's poster on my wall at my parents' house. He was such a badass, Mattingly. He really he did not care for any fanfare. He just went out. He did his job. You know, he had the he had the mustache, just a, like a Tom Selleck yeah. mustache, wore the eye black, number 23. That was initially when I played baseball, I wanted to be number 23 because of Don Mattingly. He was he was just the pinnacle of it. And he was a great hitter. He was um, had a, a lot of back injuries, and that's it shortened his career. But you would put his career when he was in the, the prime for, you know, six, seven years against anybody during that time in the 80s. And it just was a shame to see him deteriorate because of that. But he was also a great first baseman, you know. Well, so, you know, there's a couple of things, you know, I think Cooperstown, you look at his numbers. I mean, I, there's so many guys that, you know, feel like he's just in the cups of Cooperstown. And if that back injury hadn't happened, yep. there's no doubt in Cooperstown, you know, there's no doubt about it. So I think that's one of the biggest things. And, um, you know, I, I, you know, one thing about Mattingly too, it was an article I read when I was in high school that said, um, you know, Don Mattingly was like, listen, you can either hit or you can't, but defensively you can get better if you put the work in, right. If you really put the work in. And I remember thinking anyone can become a better defensive player. And I feel like because of that quote and my love for Don Mattingly, I feel like I became a better defensive player just because I read that quote every day, just thinking, you just got to put the work in. You just got to put the work in. You know what I mean? So Mattingly was such a – one other cool story. I ran into Donnie Baseball when he was he was coaching. I believe he was coaching the Yankees when I was with the Reds in spring training. And I was, like, literally in awe. Like, yeah. uh, I didn't know even know what to say. I'm like, oh, my God. And I, I ended up getting one of my bats and bringing him a bat and, and with a silver Sharpie. And I'm like, you know, I think you can sign this for me. And, and he did. He signed it for me. I still have it. I don't know where it is. It's downstairs. <laughs> But um, it, the, the the pen bled. I don't know if you guys have ever done the the, the um, you know, like the the paint pens, the paint bled. So it like it was like Don Mattingly, but it was kind of like uh, e, <laughs> and then just a bunch of crap, you know, after <laughs> it. And I was like, oh, I was I was too scared to say, can right. you do this again? Do it one more time. Yeah. So your kids look at it, you're like, who the hell is Doug Manning? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's amazing. So, well, you talk about meeting Don Mattingly, and that was he was a guy for you that you you looked up to and you revered. Who were the other guys that once you were playing Major League Baseball that when you saw on the other on the other uh, dugout you're like holy shit I'm fucking playing against whoever? Oh, God, well I was a big I was a big card collector too growing up. So you know I remember facing Randy Johnson for the first time and just being in awe of him and I was like oh my god and I was 0 for four a couple punch outs. Then like two days later we faced Greg Maddox. I'm like oh, oh. Greg Maddox 0 for four two strikeouts. <laughs> I'm like all right if I'm like. If I keep like bowing down to these guys, I'm gonna be out of the game in about two weeks. They're gonna be like, "You suck, okay? You're you're in awe. You're out of here." So there were so many guys that that you know, like the Randy Johnsons, the Greg Maddox, Will Clark was my idol, yeah. dearest idol growing up. Met him my second year in the big leagues. Um, 
Mark Grace. You know, I loved I loved the first baseman. Yeah, the know? lefty first baseman. Yeah, Grace Mattingly and uh, and Will Clark were my three favorite guys. Um, Barry Bonds, growing up, you know, in, from Pittsburgh, and seeing him and Bobby Bonilla, you know, just and then you know, just so many great guys. Seeing Jim Leland in the dugout and you know, getting to play for Jim Leland at the end of my career was unbelievable. So I mean, I don't think it ever stopped. In 2006, I played in the World Series, and Andy Van Slyke was one of our coaches who was with the Pirates back there in the early 90s, you know, late 80s, who I loved. And, uh, you know, he was my coach, and he used to throw me early BP. And I remember one day I stopped the batting practice. I'm like, Andy, I'm like, I just got to say, man, I can't (laughs) – I know it's my ninth year in the big leagues, but I can't believe Andy Van Slyke (laughs) is throwing me batting practice. (laughs) Right, and that Pirates team was a great team. Oh, so good. So good. I mean, had they not run into the buzzsaw – of the the Braves in 91 and 92, you know, you're probably talking, you know, maybe at least one World Series title. Absolutely. I, I remember I was in eighth grade uh, that year, eighth or ninth grade. It was the NLCS, the Pirates versus the Braves. Game seven, Sid oh. Bream scores. It oh. was it just like that was, I remember staying up late watching the game in, in my bedroom. And you mentioned those idols, those guys. So you mentioned two of the greatest pitchers that I've ever seen in of all time um, between Randy Johnson and, and Maddox. I remember when Randy Johnson pitched in the All-Star game and John Cruck was batting. And do you remember, like, I don't know if you ever saw it. If you didn't, you gotta you got to watch it on YouTube. So John oh, Cruck is up to bat, and Johnson sails one over his head. And John Cruck was scared. And then the next pitch, he just he starts swinging before he throws the ball. He just wanted to get the <laughs> hell out of the batter's box. So as a, as a lefty batter, Randy yeah. Johnson, 6'10", 6'11", he's thrown 97, 98 miles an hour. Was that the, the hard, like the, the dip, most difficult pitcher that you ever faced? Was he the nastiest motherfucker that you faced? He, he was the most uncomfortable bat I ever had. You know what I mean? He was like just, you know, he was 6'11". He was throwing. He, I was a lefty, so he was throwing behind me. You know, and, uh, you know, just his, like, his, you know, his slider was 93 miles an hour, 92. It was just a, it was really uncomfortable. Surprisingly enough, I hit, I was 5 for 15 off him. I hit 333, which is ridiculous because, I mean, it was that. I don't, sometimes you don't know how you do it when you're, like, I could never hit him. You know, had you not, you're kind of a maniac when you're playing Major League Baseball because you're just so intense. You're just as intense as that guy on the mound, and you get in such a zone you know, a, a flow of like, you know, I got to really see the ball and hammer it, whether it's coming out of a bazooka, Randy Johnson, Jamie Moyer throwing, you know, poop soup up there. <laughs> you know, you, 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 you just figure it out. But like facing Randy Johnson was very uncomfortable. Roy Halladay was one of the most uncomfortable bats. If you guys remember him you yeah. know, back when he was with, you know, he was he had six pick. I mean, Randy Johnson, you knew was going to throw fastball slider. So you knew it was, it was going to be hard, hard, hard. When you face Roy Halladay, you know, he was going to throw a sinker, a cutter, a changeup, a curveball, a slider. You know, a, I didn't even think he had a split. He had six pitches, and he would never he would never deal you the same way when you were up there. Like, after the game, your head would just be spinning. Like, I have no idea. There's no pattern. There's no nothing. So, what was fun about Major League Baseball, it's the biggest chess match, man. You're facing the best in the world. And every night you're trying to figure out how to how to slice and dice and how to figure these guys out. Like the back end work that you have to do as a baseball player, I feel like people don't appreciate that enough. What you had to do outside of the game itself to study it and really understand these pitchers and all these people you're going against. Yeah, well, you know, I speak, you know what you have to just 
you know, it's, it's really is your job. So, you know, you're, you're there's, and the, the good thing for me was too, there was video. Like when I was playing, I was still young enough where there was video. Now there's still tons of video and analytics. So yeah, you're always kind of like, even the relievers, you know, when you're looking at the starters, you're facing those guys, but sometimes the relievers, maybe you haven't faced them much or you know, who's, you know, who Tony LaRusse is going to bring out of the pen to face you in the eighth, what lefties coming in. And, you know, you, you end up studying, you know, you really study the, um, you know, the tendencies of, man, this guy 70% of the time is going to throw a first pitch heater to start you off. He's going to try and get you out with a slider or maybe the curveball or whatever. So, yeah, you, you, you just got to do your homework. It's just, you know, there, there's too many games and there's too much uh, going on, you know, for you not to dive in and to really, you know, figure out any kind of advantage you can have on a guy. We had Dan O'Dowd on from uh, Win Reality, What I Need. Uh, yes. You know, former, former, a former Rockies GM. It was unbelievable talking to him. And I was asking him about who was the best pitcher he saw, who was the best hitter he saw, and then what was the best pitch he had ever seen. And he, he talked about Oral Hershiser sinker from the 80s, that late 80s Dodgers team that was really good. I think about watching, you know, Randy Johnson's slider was absolutely something. Mariano Rivera's cutter. And then yeah. Pe- Pedro's changeup. As I, I was watching it, the changeup for me was always, if I had my, uh, as a pitcher, not that I did anything great with baseball, but if I had a changeup going as well, I, I knew that game I was going to, you know, I would strike out 10 guys if I might change up. If I didn't, then I, you know, it was a little bit more challenging for me. So Pedro's change up to me, like watching it, it looked like a Frisbee that he was throwing. What was the, the, the nastiest pitch or the best pitch you've ever seen as a batter, as a pitcher was thrown against you? You know what? I mean, I, that's one of the greatest points because I work with Pedro now at MLB network and, you know, I faced Pedro for years. He's a good friend of mine. He is, he might be the nastiest pitcher of all time. He might be the Pedro Martinez might be the greatest pitcher of all time. If you go look at the numbers and how dominant he was, especially in the era that he pitched, but Pedro's fingers, they're, they're the most unbelievable thing you've ever seen. They're like, they're like this pen. They come out. So can you see it? So yeah. his fingers are like this long and they curl up. Swear to God, they curl up like this. It's the most unbelievable thing I've ever seen. And like, I'm like, because he is not a big dude. Pedro is not big. He's not strong. You know, he's wiry with these fingers that you've that God give God gave him these fingers that no one else in the world has. They curl up. And so he could take the ball and manipulate it however he wanted to, especially with like you know that four seamer. But the changeup, his changeup was devastating. I mean, I remember one time facing him at spring training, he threw me a changeup at Fort Myers. It was like Bugs Bunny. I, I knew it was coming. I, I saw it. I'm like, oh, I'm on it. And then I go to swing and it like stopped. And I'm like, ah, ah. And I ended up hitting, I hit the ball on the end of the bat like this. And it cued like <laughs> right to him. And he tagged, you know, cued down first base. And he uh, grabbed it and tagged me. And I was like, really? Really? And he's like, sorry about that case. Yeah. I'm like, I'm like, that's nasty. <laughs> I remember hitting. That was one of the most emasculating things when you oh. when you hit the ball and you think it's going to be foul and you have to like, all right, I got to run out of first base, and then the pitcher takes you out. It, that's yeah, way like, to hustle. Oh, way exactly. to hustle. Yeah. <laughs> Change up in general, trying to hit that. It's the most emasculating thing ever. Yeah. I'm like licking my yeah. chops, trying to go up there and just like fucking completely whiff on it. And it's they, the best. Trevor Hoffman had the best changeup ever. I remember in San Diego one time, bases loaded. You know, he comes out to Hell's Bells. Bang, oh bro. man, I just got didn't ask about ring that. Hell's Bells, and the place is just going sixty thousand in San Diego, going nuts. And I'm like, okay, here we go, bases loaded. You know, we were down a couple. You know, three two, and I didn't really strike out a ton. So I was like, all right, I'm really good. I know the changeup's coming. So I'm like, 
here we go. And I like, wait, I see it. And I swing, I miss it. Swear to God, by 10 feet, game over. I'm like, oh my God. Like, uh. You know, it, you know, somebody's nasty when you know the pitch is coming and you still look like you're four years old. <laughs> that, those are, that's why Mariano Rivera to me was so great because he could tell you, here it comes. He'd flick his oh. glove up. Here comes my cutter every single fucking time. You knew it was coming. And you couldn't, no one could hit it. Amazing. Yeah, well, it looked it looked like a four seamer at fifty five feet. You're like, oh my god! He finally Mariano threw a four seamer. You're like, this is great. <laughs> then you go to swing and it, and it just buzzsaw. It yep. just starts running at the last second, like you like this much, and it just. I, I think I faced him three times and broke three bats. That's what I was going to say. He was actually one of the few pitchers in Major League Baseball that it was tougher for a lefty batter to bat against him than a righty. Usually righties on righties, it's a tougher matchup for the batter. Yeah. It was a tough tougher for a lefty to bat against Rivera. Yeah, well, because on a lefty, it's coming in on your right. hands, and nobody likes the ball. No big leaguer, nobody likes the ball up and in. Nobody. It's it's the dead zone. It's just it's the toughest pitch to hit. You might guys might run into one now and then. You're like, oh, look at that. But if you if you routinely threw it there, guys would hit under a hundred, right? Well, Mariano's cutter came exactly there on lefties. On a righty, you know the cutter. Like sometimes as a hitter, you're looking to get your arms extended. So if he's throwing you a cutter as a righty, you actually can get your arms extended on that. You've got a way better shot as a righty than you do a lefty against Mo. Sean, we just talked to a guy. Uh, we released the podcast over the past weekend, Clint Lockoff, and he works with athletes. He's a performance mindset coach. He works with athletes around the stories that we tell them. So they tell themselves this self-fulfilling prophecy as athletes. So especially when you get like locked up, think about uh, Chuck Knobloch when he was playing for the Twins and for the Yankees when he couldn't throw the ball to first base, or Rick Ankiel when he was pitching and then all of a sudden he just couldn't do it anymore and he had to move his position. Because it, Did you ever get to a point in your career or, or play with someone that because of their mindset, you knew they had the athletic ability, but something got in their way and all of a sudden they couldn't perform on the field? Oh my gosh, yeah. As a matter of fact, I had a little bit of that in college. I had the yips, but thank God I played first base. Like, I couldn't throw it around. Like, we would, you know, it'd be that first out of the first inning, and I'd go to throw it to the shortstop to throw it around, and I'd, I'd spike it or sail it. It was one of the most frustrating things ever. Um, you know, that was, it, it scared me too, because as I got to pro ball, I'm like, man, I'm still not that great of a thrower. And it was a guy named Johnny Goral, old school guy, you know, just, tough as nails and he got me down in Kinston, North Carolina one morning. We must have taken 200 grounders and he taught me like to start throwing down, you know, almost three quarters because he taught me if I throw it three quarters and I miss, I'm going to miss left to right. I was, I was so in my head of trying to be perfect with my throwing that I would take the arm back and when I would throw it, I would either put it in the ground or sail it and it was so frustrating. When I started to learn to throw three quarters, you know, it just helped me so much. And I became a really good thrower, but, you know, it was through a lot of trial and error. And, 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 and you know, it's scary. It's scary when you got the, when you have the yips like that. I played with a guy, God rest his soul, Ryan Friel, who had second base and would sometimes, you know, that, that short throw, that 15-foot throw, you know, you see a lot of second basemen have the yips. Steve Sachs, Chuck Knobloch. It's that short throw is sometimes there's no medium. You know, it, it's easy to lob it and it's easy – to throw it hard, but that short medium throw can, for some reason, mess with your mind as far as, you know, what the speed is and where, where do I release it? And, you know, when I remember Ryan Friel, like, you know, I used to just, I used to just tell him and try to support him, you know, and, and just say, Hey man, when you get it, just throw it. I, right. If you put it near me at first base, I'll make the play. Like 
you know, because I've seen guys that have the yips, and I've also seen first baseman that'll say, come on, dude, throw it, hit me in the chest. And you're like, dude, like, how are you an idiot as far as, like, the, how human beings work? Like, that's going to make it worse. Right. Like, by you burying him, it's going to make it worse. So, like, I tried to, when guys struggled throwing, I, I would try to be like, hey, man, I got you. I got your back. You get it here. If I got to pick it, I'll pick it. But don't worry about, you know, being perfect. Just sling it to me. Yeah, you know? it was so interesting. What, what I talked about, I had the yips my junior year in high school on the yeah. hill. I, I can paint the corner. I was able to throw, I was throwing, you know, mid to upper 80s. Yeah. But once there was a ball on the ground as a pitcher, once I caught it, that was it for me. I was like, who knows what's going to happen here? <laughs> I There were times I threw the ball not over, over the first baseman's head, over the fucking fence behind the first baseman, or I would throw it seven feet in front of me. And the, the coach would go nuts. His name was Tony Ashantino, and he had this, like, really deep, raspy voice. What the hell? And I still remember, I would catch it. I'd be like, don't make a mistake. Don't make a mistake. Here it comes. Make a mistake. Yeah. That happened every fucking time. But I had oh. to retrain my brain to go back and retell that story in a way like, okay, you can do this. And it was, like, slowly but surely this, like, cognitive behavior therapy I went through from a coach. I didn't even realize it, but it retrained my brain in that way. And it is, like – if people are saying, come on, what the hell, just get it here, it's worse. That's just going to make the, the, the monster f- scarier in your head. Yeah. I mean, because like, that's what I'm curious about. Like, how do you do that as you're playing? Like, you could talk about it now because yeah. you're not playing the game anymore. But, like, for me, I there was one year I stopped playing when I was 17 uh, because I couldn't handle the pressure. I really couldn't. <laughs> and when I played football, I didn't feel any pressure. You know, it wasn't just me. It was it was the team, and I'm like, cool, I could rely on the people next to me. But in baseball, it's you versus your head, right? It's you versus yourself and that. And I remember when I was, I think it was like 15 years old, I was in a on an all-star team, and I went like 13 for 13. I was in the pit. No one could strike me out. Fast forward to the next year, I was 0 for 16. I didn't hit a fucking ball. I couldn't do it. It didn't matter if it was a beach ball. I was not hitting that thing. Right. And I didn't know, and I just completely collapsed mentally, emotionally, everything. So, like, in the moment, like, what are – what are you telling yourself? You know, what are the things you're telling yourself to be like, I to get yourself out of it because it's a long season, right? You start out like that. It's, it's tough. You know, this is, this is what's great. And this is why I feel like, you know, the next stage of my life, like, you know, you know, helping men, you know, if it's a life coach or whatever, because I believe baseball mirrors life and the stuff you just said, everyone's gone through. Like, it's scary, man. At the end of the day, if you're in football, you could have someone block for you. If you're in football, I can, I can, I can mix in. I'm a bunch of helmets, right? You know. But at the end of the day, at baseball, it's a wrestling match. I'm on an island in a box. That guy's on an island on the mound. It's time to get it on. Now, the bottom line is, if you don't have your thoughts together, if you don't have the belief in yourself, if you're not able to breathe and really slow yourself down, if you're not, if you don't have a game plan, I always say like, you can't bring a butter knife to an Uzi fight. Like when you're, when, when you're, when you're in a, when you're in a one-on-one match in the big leagues or anytime in high school, really in high school, sometimes too, like you, you're not a man yet. You, if you have failure, you don't know how to deal with it. Right. Because you get paralyzed, you know, fear paralyzes us. Well, especially in a place where I have no confidence, I'm 0 for 16. Like, how do I get out of this? For me as a hitter, you know, I it was so much about perspective. Like, I had to tell myself, my faith was a big part of my life when I was playing. 
And before the games, I had a routine. At 6 o'clock, I would sit down. I would read a Bible verse to keep perspective that this isn't the end of the world. Like, my life's not going to end if I go 0 for 4 or if I get released, right? Um, I would read The Mental Game of Baseball by Harvey Dorfman. There was a part in there uh, on mental discipline. I read it every day since I was 16, that same book in that chapter, right? Um, and then I would do a, a breathing technique. It was called the release technique. Then I think it's called the Sedona method now, where I would think of a situation. And it's funny how we're, we're really energetic beings. Somewhere in your body, that energy would come. And it would come in my stomach or it would come in my throat. And I would think about the game or not doing well. Bam, it would hit me. I would put my head down. I'd breathe for 10 minutes. I'd move the energy. And at 6.30, I'd walk out of that room saying, I'm ready to play. Like I'm ready to play now. I've put perspective in my life. I've 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 had uh I've I've had good breathing and the learning. I've reiterated the learning that I have repetitions of mother of skill. I reiterated the point of see the ball be easy, you know. And Harvey Dorfman, my mental coach, used to say, breathe or die. If you don't breathe out there every pitch, that guy's gonna eat your lunch. So for me, when I struggled, I always had something to go back to. I always had a game plan that worked. You know, you talk about being a 300 career hitter, like, hey, guess what, guys? That means I failed 70% of the time. I sucked. 70% of the time I failed. You do that in real life, you're fired. You're fired after 30% failure. In the big leagues or baseball, you fail 70% of the time. You're 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 in Cooperstown or you're considered a, a really good player, right? So, like, it was constant self-talk. It was constant talk to say, hey, what are the bigger reasons that I'm here and, and, and really trying to just use my gifts to the, to the, you know, to the umpteenth degree. So it's amazing. Like you said, to play in the big leagues and the mental part of being your own best friend, the self love you have to have in the big leagues or, or, or just in baseball is huge because no one can help you. My mommy and daddy can't help me. My hitting coach can't help me. My pitch, my, my um, manager can't help me. No one can help me in that box. I have to be able to help myself. And that was a huge thing for me when I played. And a lot of it is the idea of visualization. So what you you were ahead of your time as far as the breathing techniques were concerned. Now that people have whole industries. We just interviewed a guy, Josh Trent. His whole thing is about breathing. And he has a tattoo in his arm. And it basically it says in a, from an Italian to translation, if I can breathe, I can choose. So often we get our breath gets trapped up in our chest and we're, we're very shallow in our breathing, but we need to like fully experience something. So the fact that you were doing that when you were playing, you were definitely ahead of the curve there. So you were visualizing these positive things happening before you actually went out onto the field. My son is a football player and I tell him he, he plays quarterback for the high school football team. I would say before the game, sit down for, for 15 minutes, run through every play and see yourself completing those passes Every single time, throwing the perfect spiral, hitting the, making the right reads, this and that. How does that transfer into that visualization piece from baseball into your your life outside of baseball? Do you still use that visualization technique now in what you're doing in your life? Well, you know what that that visualization is so powerful. I used to carry a you know back in that day DVD. You know, on uh, I had a visual coach. It's crazy. I had this guy Bill Harrison, who um, his son is still running um, the the program. Bill passed away a few years ago. Ryan Harrison called slow the game down. You go to slowthegamedown.com and he was just big on reiterating your positive at bats. Like, cause what happens is whenever we struggle in baseball or in life, what do we do? Like, like I'd say, well, like Tony Robbins says, like where your focus goes, your energy flows. It's so true. If I stay on what I suck on, 
right? And I stay that I'm not a good a player. Well, guess what? I'm just putting myself down into a hole more and more and more. If I start visualizing, man, if I, I used to take this DVD and put all my good at bats on it, like a highlight reel, I put it to music and I'd watch it before the games. I'd watch it on the flights and I would just watch me raking balls in the gap, home runs, doubles, balls, line to line, right? So that I could re- reiterate, man, I'm a good player. I'm a really good player. I'm, I'm, I might not be right now, but I'm going to be tomorrow. Tomorrow, is, I'm one at bat away from being a really good player. And I think that's the same way it is as it is in life. And I think, it, you know, I know for me, I really always went by that repetition is the mother of skill. What I do daily as a player shows up on the field. Like that routine I did, and not just baseball stuff, that routine I did at 6 o'clock before a 7.05 game was probably the most important thing that I did in my 12-year career in the big leagues because it got my mind frame into a place that says you're now ready to go compete. Well, it's the same thing. If I get up in the morning and I, and I get up at, you know, five thirty six o'clock or whatever, I go downstairs, I plan out my day, you know, I do my readings, you know, I, I read a, a scripture from the Bible. I do a, the daily stoic, you know, um, I, I do a, a gratitude journal. I, I just write out my stuff. And then I, then I go hit the Peloton for 15 to 30 minutes. Why? Cause I'm, I call it the energy, energy making machine. I'm setting my day up to, you know, that's my process. Like I would in the, in the big leagues, my process for life is a little bit different, but that my morning routine is something that's so important for me that sets up my days, you know, to really, you know, to visualize, Hey, it's going to be a great day. And I got great perspective and I've wrote, written down some things that I'm grateful for, you know? So that I would, that would, that would be something I would correlate from my process in baseball you know, and the old adage too, process, not results. Like Harvey Dorf, my mental coach, say process, not results. Focus on the task at hand. If you do X, this is going to happen. You will get the results. You know, you might not get them. You might get them good one day and bad and the next day, but your consistency, more often than not, you're going to get the results you're looking for. And I think the same thing goes for life. The more I do the process that I know works, my anxiety is a lot different. My stress is a lot different. Um, my energy is a lot higher and the days that I don't guess what it's my energy's not right. as good. My anxiety is a little higher. My breath's a little more shallow. So it's just, it's, it's real. We just had a conversation, my brother and I about the idea of the what ifs. And so often in life, especially as men, we, what if the bad shit we, what if, what if this doesn't work? What if I strike out? What if I lose my job? What if this, this relationship doesn't work out in a specific way? So we talked about what ifing the good shit. What if the interview goes really well today? What if we make a great <laughs> connection? What if we get sponsored by such and such? What if we make 500 grand a year being podcasters? What if that stuff, then you start to see it. And what you mentioned the Tony Robbins quote, it's such a profound thing. It's easy to say, but Putting it in practice is the tough part. Really being cognizant of the way that you're talking to yourself and what you're visualizing, what you're seeing. No, so, I, I agree with that so much. I think one of the biggest things is, you know, you are in charge of how you respond. You know, how you respond to life, right? I think that's one of the biggest things. I love that book, "The Man's Search for Meaning" by Viktor Frankl. I'm sure you guys, have, you know, oh, I don't, have you guys read that book? Absolutely. Yeah. I think of that book so much because what I think of Victor Frankel, you know, a, a, a great professional gets brought into the concentration camps. I mean, the torture and the mental angst and the death, it was, it was awful to hear about Auschwitz and all the other places that he went. 
But then he always said, you know, the one thing I had was the way I responded, my freedom of my mind, my perspective, you know, and just the way he looked at the, the, his, his response. I think about that daily. I think about, man, Victor Frankl's response. We really do have a choice in every situation in my life today. Whatever happens, I have, a, my, I have the power of choice to respond however I want to respond and create any narrative and story I want to create, right? I can go down the rabbit hole of, oh, my God, I'm, my life sucks and I'm having such a tough day, blah, 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 blah. Or I can look at the truth and say, yeah, this, this happened. And you know what? What are the positives I can get from it? What are the, I'm going to respond over here. I'm going, to, I'm going to create a story that serves me, not a story that doesn't serve me. I, like, I always like Don Miguel Ruiz in the, in the um, Four Agreements when he talks about the truth. Find the truth. The tree, the tree outside right here, this big oak tree I have in my front yard, it's an oak tree. Well, I say to you, Dennis, I say, hey, brother, what do you think of that oak tree out in my front yard? And you go, you know what? Can't stand oak trees. They're the worst trees out there. The freaking, yeah, I just, they're big. They're, they, they lose their leaves in the winter. You know, I, green, I can't stand green. I can't stand browns. My, it's the worst color. I don't like trees. I don't like big trees. Okay, that's cool. Then you say, what, what about you? Case, okay, so what do you think? And I say, you know what, Dennis? I love oak trees. They're powerful. They're huge. I love green. I love brown. It's awesome. They're my favorite trees. Well, who gives a shit? You know, at the end of the day, my story is my story. Your story is your story. The truth is, it's an oak tree. That's the truth, right? So I always try to look at anything in my life, find the truth, and pick a story that serves me at the end of the day. It's my choice. It's not your life. It's not your guy's life. It's my life. I have, it's my brain. It's my mind. I have the choice of what any perspective I, I do. I, hey, brother, I'm in charge. I'm the president of Sean Casey's Mind Fan Club. I have the choice of how I respond. You, I'll take it slightly back to, to what you were saying before. I love that, the oak tree idea, by the way. I, it's tremendous. We we talk a lot about trees here in, in several different ways, but <laughs> I like that, you know, basically the way that you see things. It's it, that whole idea of perspective um, and your perspective as well. I mean, there's that, that's definitely going to be in the title of the episode, just the, your perspective as a former Major League Baseball player, as a coach right now. I want to take it back to, you mentioned baseball cards before, and I, I jotted it down, um, collecting baseball cards myself. There was just something about it, right? And um, do you remember when they had the? Uh, it sounded like Chris Farley when he's interviewing. Uh, remember, you remember, remember, remember when? That was uh, awesome. That was awesome. Uh, uh, that was that was awesome. That was awesome. <laughs> you remember the? Do you remember the Beatles? No. So uh, the baseball cards, you'd get the pack of tops, and they had the. It would have the stick of gum. It had that hard ass. Oh. So good. Stick, stick so of hard. gum, but it was. Uh, you re- I remember getting it, and the, it was like a wax pack of cards that I would open it up, and there would be a stick of gum in there. That brought me back to you know the, the whole baseball theme in the beginning. But um, so going through, I just I needed to say that I needed to get off my head. I, sometimes I'll just go off topic. I just wanted to talk about the gum, the sliver slice of gum. Times inside. I feel like you're on the spectrum a little yeah, bit where you. Listen, I need to. I need, I need to, to say this. I need to say. 
it resonates with people. People remember, like, God damn, I remember getting the pack of cards. I was looking for Donnie Baseball from the 1983 Topps Collection, his rookie card, and I didn't. I got Dale Murphy or whatever it is. So walk us through. So you're growing up, right? So you, you, you were born in Jersey, and it's funny. You were Willingboro, Jersey born, and so there's a connection there. But then you moved out. Uh, you grew up in the Pittsburgh area. Yeah. yeah. Um, so playing baseball growing up, it, you, we talked about these moments before. Do you remember a specific moment growing up playing baseball where you were like, this moment, I remember it so deeply. I want to be a Major League Baseball player. I'm going to push myself. I'm going to do everything that I could possibly do based on this specific success in baseball or whatever it was. I had, I remember my first home run I, I hit. Uh, I was 11 years old. You know, first one over the fence. I, 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 you know, I hit. I remember it was a street on the other side of that fence, and I hit. I hit this white Camaro, and I was like. Oh yeah, my first home ever. I hit a white Camaro. I still have the ball, and I wrote "hit white Camaro." It was like awesome. 1985 or so. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, that was one of the moments. I just I loved baseball. Loved the Pirates. My dad loved baseball, um, and I remember being 12 years old. I dominated 12 year old travel, and but I wasn't the fastest guy. I wasn't like the you know I wasn't the best athlete out there. Like if you looked at me play, you'd go, "Ah, oh, he's a good player," but you know probably, you know, going to play in high school and stuff like that. And I remember telling, you know, anyone that would listen when I was 12, man, I'm going to play in the big leagues one day. I'm going to play in the big leagues one day. Well, who's, what 12-year-old doesn't say that? You know, they're going to play in the big leagues one day. And, and uh, you know, I think for me, um, I just had this weird belief that, like, that I could do it. Like, weird belief that, like, um, my, my, my freshman year in high school – um, so I was the best player up until 14 at 14. I just really hadn't hit puberty. I was a young, I was a young freshman. I didn't turn. I don't, maybe I wasn't 14 till. Yeah. I don't think I, I didn't, I, I no. I was four, I didn't turn 15 till that summer going into my sophomore year. So I was young. So that freshman year of baseball was the first year I never played. I didn't play at all. I, you know, my, my, I, I came home and, uh, I told my dad, dad, can you go talk to the coach? Like, does he not know that I was the best player, like 10, 11, 12, 13, and now I'm not playing? And I remember my dad, was, you know, it's a conversation that, you know, as a father, um, you know, it, it, it could go either way with your son, you know, talking about like doing everything for your kids. My dad easily could have gone and talked to the coach and said, you know what, why is my son not playing? He's, he's the best hitter on the team, blah, blah, blah. And my dad said, you know what, I'm not going to go talk to the coach. He's like, you're not glaringly better than the other kid. If you were glaringly better, there's no way this coach could not play you. So he's like, there's a batting cage opening up town next to us. He goes, I'll, I'll make you a deal. I'll buy you as many tokens as you use. If you go every day and hit, I'll buy you tokens. As soon as you stop, he goes, he, he said, deal's off. I said, deal. So like, I took it to heart. Like he was like, you got to work harder. You got to get glaringly better than everyone else. And then I started to hit every day after, um, after that. And, and, and I hit literally every day. I'd go to this place called Grand Slam USA. Hit, hit, hit. Sophomore year, I end up starting JV. Junior year, I started varsity. Senior year, I started varsity. And then I ended up getting a, a, a scholarship to the University of Richmond. But that conversation with my dad was an eye-opening experience for me because at 12, I thought I was going to play in the big leagues. And at 14, I couldn't even play on the freshman baseball team. And, uh, you know, it turned into a, a conversation of, had I not had that conversation and taken that to heart, started loving hitting and loving the craft every day and working on it every single day. There's no way I play in the big leagues. Nothing better than the feeling of hitting a home run. I remember, I can remember the, again, the smell of the grass. I remember the feeling of hitting my first home run 10 years old off of Joey Pavitas. I was on the Yankees. He was in the Padres and I could, 
I remember it. It's so funny, like thinking back to those experiences in our life. And I got to tell you, what a great life lesson that your father gave you right there. Yeah. Yeah. Unbelievable life lesson. We talk so many times on this podcast about what we're doing, um, helping the the next generation. And when you're solving their problems, you are doing them a disservice, not letting them experience life, persevere through something challenging. And if he would have talked to your coach and your coach was like, all right, maybe I'll give him a shot. You wouldn't have put in the work. So that conversation your father had with you, that could have ultimately changed the trajectory of your entire life. He gave me another valuable lesson too. So that was the most, that was one of the most valuable lessons. Then my senior year, you know, I played in the Keystone state games, my junior, my, my junior summer going into my senior year, I hit like 600, couple home runs, blah, blah, blah. But like I said, I didn't light up. I didn't light up the, um, the, you know, run the 60. I ran the over seven, you know, I just, I didn't, it wasn't, I didn't look sexy, but I, but in the game I rake, you know what I mean? So it was like, you really had to see what you were looking for. So my senior year, I'm like, all I want to do is play division one baseball. I didn't even care about division one. I wanted to play college baseball division one, two or three. My dad had just started his own company, Casey chemical. I saw how hard he worked every night. The lights are on until 1130 downstairs. His office was downstairs in the living room. You know, this guy was a killer. But I'm literally thinking, though, Dad, I'm about to go to college and start your own company. This might be a bad idea. You know, my <laughs> sister's at Penn State. We don't, my dad, we don't make a ton of money at the time. But my senior year, by the end of my senior year, my, my dad's message to me with hitting was preparation meeting opportunity, right? Luck is preparation meeting opportunity. Be prepared because one day an opportunity is going to come along for you and be ashamed if you're not prepared. And I always thought of that. But then I thought, man, my dad's full of shit. Like, it's the end of my senior year. I don't have a college scholarship offer, Division One, Two, or Three, right? And I remember my dad. Every month we would he would send out these five thousand letters, you know, network marketing, five thousand letters. Now you just hit a button on your email or social media, bam, you got a hundred thousand. Back then it was, and we, I was I knew because I would stuff the envelopes. My sister, I would stuff them after school. We'd send them out, right? And my dad's like, if I get one person back from this mailing. That could be a sale that, that makes us eat this month, right? That was his philosophy. Like, we, 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 we get it out there to enough people, someone's going to bite, right? And so by the end of my senior year, my dad's like, hey, listen, it looks like no one's coming to you. Why don't you start going to them? Like, why don't you take your life and you take it, you know, by the cojones and you go out and get it? Like, don't wait for these coaches to call you and send you letters. Like, you go get it. So he told me, like, write 30 letters to your the co- colleges you want to go to. So I did. College of Worcester, Division Three in Ohio, boom. Marietta, Division Three, Clemson, Division One, Penn State, Division One, All these places, 30 letters. I wrote them specific to the coaches. The last thing, he gives me a brochure. Hey, you got this brochure last year from the, from the Keystone State Games at University of Richmond. Send them one, too. Just throw in a 31st letter. Boom, boom, boom. I, boom. I sent it to Richmond. Four days to go. In uh, my college, in my in my in my high school career, we're 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 you know we're a really good team. I, all my buddies, I got one buddy going to Penn State to pitch, but other buddies going to play football. One at Bucknell, one at WJ. They're all over the place. I got nothing. I got so I'm going to John Carroll in in Cleveland just to go to school. That's what I was doing. I was going to walk on the program. I even asked the coach, "Has anyone ever been drafted out of John Carroll?" He's like, "Well, Don Shula went here." I was like. Well, how does that help? He's a football coach. You know I mean? <laughs> so, so I end up sending these letters out. Uh, we're playing this team, Montour, team here in Pittsburgh. I go four for four, eight ribbies, two doubles right center, two doubles left center. And my coach, I remember him saying, 
hey, you've had a great game today. You know, how many hits you have? I was like, I got four hits. How many RBIs? Eight RBIs, four doubles. He's like, that's great. He's like, you see the guy behind the, the backstop? I said, yeah. He's like, that's the University of Rich- Richmond pitching coach. Uh, drove up with his wife to six hours to see you play. So after the game, I walk up. He's like, hey, man, I got your letter. He's like, uh, I called a scout in the area that said he liked your bat. So I drove up here to see you play. Nice game. Really like your swing. Let me go back and talk to Coach Atkins. His name was Mark McQueen. So Mark McQueen was like, let me go t- Let me go talk to Coach Atkins when I get back to Richmond. See, calls me the next day. Hey, we'd like to offer you a $1,000 scholarship. I was like, I'll, I'll come for free. I don't need any money. Just let me give me a shot to play. But that's how I ended up getting to University of Richmond, by sending 30, 31 letters that my dad was like, it, listen, if you're not gonna, if they're not gonna come to you, go to them. And I think that's such a, it's such a, um, you know, a, a, a metaphor for life. Like, are you gonna just react to life to what people say to you? Are you gonna just do whatever you know everyone else is doing, or are you actually gonna take your life and make the choices that you want to make and put the time in that you want to do and have the process so good that your days are, are that your days are you know really really good you know day in and day out. So. You know, I'm very thankful for those two stories from my dad because without those, you know, and then three years, three years later, I won the NCAA batting title. Three years later, I can't get a, I can't get a freaking scholarship from anybody in the earth on earth. Three years later, I won the NCAA batting title. I hit 461 and was a division. It was a second round pick by the Cleveland Indians. Three years later, preparation meets opportunity. It's so yeah. It, it's really the way that I look at it, like the difference between you and so many people, maybe at your same skill level and talent level who didn't make it as far is the belief that you had in yourself and the actions that you took to get there from the valuable lessons that you learned from your father. I mean, it's just, it's mm. so powerful, man. I really, mm. it's, it's unbelievable. That, the, like the belief in behavior, belief in behavior. Like I, I, I think they go hand in. I did believe I know I'm a good player. Boy, I, I do want to play in the big leagues. Even if I was 14 or 15 years old at the time when my dad was like, go get better. And I was like, yeah, I can. And I, I started, to th- I took a lesson with this guy, Frank Porco. Never played college baseball. He was a high school. He was doing it on the side. You know, he was a labor negotiator here in Pittsburgh. And I took a lesson every Tuesday night. But I always tell kids, you could take as many lessons as you want. It's the 30 minutes on Tuesday what are you doing on Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and Monday? And I think the belief that I wanted to play in the big leagues and the belief that I could do it, as crazy as it would sound, from from having no offers by anybody, no scouts, you know, I, I, you know, all that stuff, to the behavior, the belief that I could do it, created the behavior of me hitting every day, of like, oh yeah, I'm gonna almost kind of like, I'm gonna I'm gonna show you, and then it became, I'm gonna craft this skill. I'm going to craft this skill and like, I'm going to do it on my own when no one's looking and I'm going to dominate when game time comes because I'm just building confidence. So you're exactly right. Belief and behavior go hand in hand. I believed it and my behavior changed. It's a carpe diem. It's the it's seizing the day. You had an opportunity. Had that guy driven up from Richmond to see you and you go over four, you get a hat trick. You're, it's a different story, but and I wonder too. I also wonder, Sean, if you knew that 
this dude was in the stands. How would that have made a difference on your performance? <laughs> you never know. It's like a chicken or the egg kind of thing. Oh, but I look at it uh, when they write your story eventually, that's going to be a big chapter in your hero's journey is this moment where, you know, beforehand, you, you, no one was believing you. No one was giving you a shot. You carried that belief in yourself until someone else could pick it up, like until they would yeah. they, they saw where you were going. And then lace in four doubles, eight RBIs. That's a getting up with the bases loaded fucking four times. That's a that's yeah. amazing. Yeah. <laughs> How yeah. often does that happen? I, I know it was it was it, it's crazy. It um so now I wonder as I, as I look at your life and the the story of your life now playing in Major League Baseball. Whenever you think about those heroes' journeys after you've you've climbed that first mountain, there's always that difficult spot that happens. So now you're playing. You get drafted. You're playing Major League Baseball. Do you remember that time on your journey where? You, you started to lose belief in yourself. Maybe there was a big moment where you didn't come through in a clutch situation where you're like, shit, uh, maybe this isn't for me. Maybe I need to hang him up right now. Well, I, I got called up to the big leagues, and I got traded. I was with, came up with the Cleveland Indians in 90, 97. I got traded to the Cincinnati Reds in 98. In 97, I just hit 380 in AA and AAA. So I was like one of the best pr- pr- prospects. I was the number one prospect in baseball. And, you know, it's crazy to even say that, thinking back, that was 1997. In 1992, I didn't have a scholarship offer. In 1997, yeah. I was the number one prospect in minor league baseball. It's, just, it's mind-blowing, right? It's like you talk about belief and behavior. Yep. It's mind-blowing to think that. So in 1998, at spring training, I was behind Jim Tomey. Richie Sexton was a top prospect with the Indians at the time. He and I were the two first basemen. Jim Tomey wasn't going anywhere. Guy had 600, some of the greatest hitters of all time. So they traded me to the Reds on opening day, 14 hours before opening day for the Reds' number one starter, Dave Berba. So I get to I get to Cincinnati. I'm all excited, you know. Um, and my third day there, during batting practice, Barry Larkin and Damian Jackson were turning two live off the bat, and Larkin threw it to Damian Jackson. Damian Jackson threw it to me. I threw it to the bucket, which is over in the outfield. You know, the guy carries a bucket, and you bring the bucket and you load the balls up. So the next ball had already been hit when I was throwing to the bucket. Larkin throws it to Damian Jackson. Damian Jackson throws it to me. I'm not looking. So I'm standing there, how ironic, with a huge net in front of me to not get hit. And I take a ball from second base right in my orbital bone. Boom. Third day in the big leagues, traded for their number one starter. Bam, I go down, knocked out cold. Orbital fractures, fractured my whole, my whole orbital bone was fractured. Um, I was like out to here. You know, I get taken to the hospital. I get a I get a surgery. Um, you know, I change my vision, damage my iris. I have double vision when I get up. So here I am. I'm I'm in, I'm in the I'm in the hospital on the supposed to be the best time of my life. Third day, I'm I'm fighting for my for my career at this point. Like you lose your vision in the big leagues, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you lose everything. And I'm sitting there in the in the in the hospital thinking, God's not gonna give me anything I can't handle. And if it's to never play baseball again, it's never to play baseball again, but I'm going to get back at some point. So I came back, you know, I had this surgery cause I had double vision. I came back like eight weeks later, like probably way too fast, but I came back my first game in Montreal three for four. I'm like, Oh, here we go. I proceeded to go. I believe Oh, for my next 34 or 35. And I remember, I think I was like depressed at the time. I was 23. I was just went through a major trauma. I can't get a hit in the big leagues when I, you know, I've always hit my whole life. And I remember that moment thinking like, man, I, 
maybe I'm not a big leaguer. Like maybe this this life isn't for me. Maybe maybe this is, you know, this injury is something that's going to change the trajectory of what I thought my life was going to go. And it's funny, I went back down to AAA and I really leaned into my faith, to tell you the truth, with just like perspective of like, I really believed that, that God would give me nothing I couldn't handle. And, you know, that feeling of kind of letting go and be like, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Like, I can't try to hold on to try and get hits. Like, that doesn't work. Like, I have to go down. I have to really get easy again. I got to start to breathe, slow myself down. And if I do well, I get back to the big leagues. If I don't, I don't. It turns out I end up doing really well. I am going back to the big leagues. And the next year, 99, I, you know, almost won the almost won the MLB batting title, hit 330 with 25 homers, 100 ribbies, went to my first all-star game. It's crazy. But that moment in 98 was the one time in my life where I was like, huh, this is it. Or this might be this might be the end of my career. So as I'm watching this in the movie theater, your journey, right? From that point, and you have to like go into that that deep spot, that dark spot, really understand it. What then? What's the one moment as you look back and you're like, that was the moment that I would pick out and say, you know, before the end credit scene, this is what I want the audience to see is this moment, this home run, this whatever it was. What's your what would be your defining moment that you go back and there's this emotional attachment because it was such a powerful spot. Wow, I got a few of them. Um... I would say 2006, game four, uh, playing with the Tigers against the Cardinals. And in the fourth, my second at bat, I get a cutter from Jeff Supon down and in, and I hit a ball. Uh, I homered in the World Series. And I was rounding first base. God, it kind of chokes me up when I think about it. But I was rounding first base, and that little kid that was not that fast, that little kid that wasn't – you know, in the best shape, that little kid that sometimes was bullied for his weight, you know, that little kid that that was throwing the wiffle ball up in his backyard and saying, oh, cheering for himself, Sean Casey, homers in the World Series, and the crowd goes crazy. I remember rounding first base and having a lot of those, it was almost like my brain was, I I was just like, I, I just homered in the World Series. Like the dream for me was to play in the big leagues. Like the dream within the dream was the homer in the World Series. Like, I think that moment for me, looking back, I was like, if I go back to 1992, if I go back to 1988 of not playing as a freshman, and I go back to 1992, I can't find a scholarship offer, and then I go back to 1998 of orbital fracture, and eight years later I'm homering in the World Series, it's just unreal. It was a surreal moment for me. So that was probably the moment I was like, thank you, God. I got choked up listening to you say that. Yeah, that, I could feel that one, man. <laughs> As growing up, we all, whatever sport we're playing, if we're playing sports, you visualize that moment, that thing, that I'm yeah. going to hit a home run in the World Series. I'm going to strike a guy out in the ninth inning, whatever it is. Yeah. And to, to have the wherewithal in the moment, Sean, to, to think about that is what gave me chills, to appreciate the journey, not just – because. In that moment, you could have just flown around the bases and like, all right, I just. But you thought about it on such a deep level, remembering back to the twelve-year-old Sean Casey and the All Star. It, it's a really powerful moment. Yeah, it just almost. It was crazy. It almost like flooded back. It came on like my brain was like, you know, it like yeah. brought back the euphoric feeling that I felt for whatever it takes twenty seconds, twenty-five seconds to you know, around to for a home run. Like whatever those twenty-five seconds were was some of the slowest 
25 seconds of my life of just like such a euphoric. I just can't even explain it. It's just unbelievable. It was like any, anything, you, any drug you could ever have out there that would put you in a euphoric place. No one could have got, I, I was in a place that no drug could ever get you. Tell us about where you got the nickname, the mayor from. Oh, wow. You know, I think it started in Cape Cod league. I, when I was in the Cape, my sophomore summer before my junior year in college, I played for um, Bill Mosiello and Bill Mosiello, uh, you know, was a hardcore guy. He was an assistant coach at Tennessee. He's the assistant coach at TCU now. And uh, he was always like, you know, man, all you do is talk to people, man. You're talking to everyone at first. You're talking to the vendors coming in. You're talking to the fans. He's like, you're talking to the first base coach. He's like, it's like almost like you're lobbying for votes. Like you're the mayor. You're the mayor lobbying for votes. Then this guy started calling me the mayor all the time. Hey, what's up, mayor? And that, uh, that summer of the Cape. And then it somehow, uh, I believe that's, you know, that was, you know, it, it caught on to guys that end up getting drafted. And then when I was in the Myers, people were like, hey, what's up? I heard you're the mayor. I'm like, yeah. And I remember Carl Ravitch one time, 1999, I hit a ball in the, in the gap in Cincinnati. And, um, I ended up getting a triple, which that was rare, but I got a triple and I'm on third base. And, uh, Carl Ravitz was like, you baseball tonight was the big thing back then. He was like, and the mayor, Sean Casey, you know, comes up with a big triple. And I'm like, wow, that was the first time I've ever heard yeah. him on the national stage. And I think it just started to click and, you know, I'm, it's a great, I'm grateful for it. It's a great, great nickname. And so now tell us about it. The mayor's office. Tell us about the podcast yeah. that you're hosting. Oh man. You know what? Talk about, talk about taking action, you know, talk about sitting on something like being scared to do something for years. You know, I was so scared and nervous to like, I always wanted to kind of do, you know, a show or, or a a podcast. And, you know, I just, you know, I was just, just like you guys, man, you just sit down and you finally do it. You get together, you figure it out, man. I didn't know about the mics and the, you know, all the things that I, the camera and, you know, the zoom, all that stuff. And I called a friend of mine, uh, Rich Chinchimino, who's a good friend of mine that used to work at MLB Network, and I was like, "Bro, let's do a podcast." He's like, "Let's do it." So I was like, you know, I always say the first episode was ready, fire, aim. You know, I'm sure you yeah. guys feel that way too. Like, hey, man, I don't know what the hell we're doing. I don't know how to do it, but we're gonna figure it out. And you know, it's been awesome. We just did our thirty thirty um, third episode with Jeff Bagwell this week. If you check it out, I mean, you can go wherever you find podcasts. Um, you know, Spotify, Apple. We also have a YouTube channel, which is pretty cool because we, you know, we do it like you guys do it. You know, we have all the guys out there and, you know, just to be able to have Johnny Bench on and Jim Leland and, and uh, Dante Bichette and, you know, Kevin Millar and uh, Greg Vaughn the other day, Eric Davis. I mean, some of these guys that I loved, you know, and, and friends, good friends of mine, like Adam Dunn and these guys, you know, to come on the podcast. But the great thing about the podcast is like, I ask him about, hey, talk talk to me about the influences you had growing up. Tell me about the advice you give your kids. You know, it's so much more than a baseball podcast. It's like we try – I try and really bring the the, the, uh, the the athlete or the, you know, whoever we have, the actor to life and make sure that, uh, you know, the listener really gets something out of it. And that's, you know, why I created it, and it's really been a lot of fun. It's um it's interesting, the uh... – you were talking about running first base in that moment in, in Major League Baseball, hitting your hitting home run in the World Series. You, you you know the ready fire aim thing. A year ago, we're just getting the podcast going, and we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. We I mean we still I'm, yeah, I wouldn't I, say that we know <laughs> what we're doing. I take we it have out. the mics now. Right, we have we mics. Definitely have we mics. have mics and, and, and headphones. And I take every opportunity to to pull it back and talk about baseball cards and fucking bubble gum. Right, but. 
I remember watching you in that moment. I'm a baseball fan, but I remember the moment watching it. And if you would have told me 15 years ago that I would have your number in my phone texting you like, hey, come on my show in, in five minutes, I would say, are you, what the, are you crazy? Are you yeah. fucking kidding me? So here's the thing. Like when you think about it, you put the reps in and whatever you're doing and you believe in yourself. And that's that's been what we've done on this journey. And, and to hear it um you know confirmed by someone who we both looked up to it's it's a really cool moment for us as well and we truly appreciate you you being here and and talking to us before um before i give you the opportunity to tell us where we can find you i'm going to ask uh do you have any final questions bro i sure do so first of all i want to say um you had an awesome nickname in college. They called me Sidefoot because whenever I would sprint and I broke my leg before I went to school, before I side transferred foot. over, my foot would turn out to the side. And they're like, why the fuck are you running like that? And I was like, because my leg, it, it swells up and it hurts. They're like, you're like fucking Sidefoot. So every day after that, it was Sidefoot. So I, so just be grateful you were called the mayor. Um, but so, so before we leave, I like to ask all of our guests, what's one thing? thing you could tell the building men audience to do tomorrow that to start their life off to kind of kickstart it and get going oh man uh you know what i i would say one of the, my biggest things was master your perspective master your perspective like you are you every day you're gonna have things that come up that you have a choice to what what story you put to it and i i know for me like you know what i what i what i hear the other day you know the, the old adage um you know Bruce Lee would say, I'm not scared of the guy that's that's done um, 10,000 kicks one time. I'm scared of the guy that's done that's done uh, one kick 10,000 times. And I just I just think that mastering the simplicity. I know it sounds so ridiculous. Hey, master your perspective, master your story, master your response to life. That would be the biggest thing for me. Like, let's all master the story that we tell ourselves every day in situations that we that we encounter every day tremendous tremendous love that. love that sean tell us where we can find you besides you you mentioned the mayor's office podcast where else yeah. can we find you yeah i'm also on twitter i'm at the mayor's office on twitter um i'm also at the mayor's office mlb on instagram um and i'm on facebook too i don't really do the facebook thing but i know i'm on there somewhere i know somewhere. My, I, I, yeah and uh, and also youtube on youtube uh the mayor's office podcast or whatever it is on the, on our youtube channel and, and, and anyone that's out there, please subscribe and download if you go check us out and you like us because for whatever reason, that helps us out a lot. I'm sure you guys know that too. <laughs> that's yeah. what I was just going to say at the end. I say find us building.men on Instagram, buildingmencoach at Gmail. Or our website is buildingmen.io. Yeah, if, if you found any value to this episode, uh, like, subscribe, rate what we're doing, leave a review. It really helps us out. Uh, I want to thank our sponsors, Finish the Race Apparel. Uh, t-shirts, hats, gear. Um, we're also sponsored by Become Stronger Industries. Steel, handmade steel maces and hammers. Pake McNally, great fucking dude. Um, when this episode comes out, we have a big men's retreat right around the corner. It's called The Hero's Journey. It's in Lake Tahoe, April 28th through May 1st. Uh, we're looking for, we, we're almost booked up. We have a couple more men that we're looking to join up. It's a badass experience. Uh, so if you want more information, direct message us. Um, on behalf of Sidefoot, Anthony Meralda, I want to thank everyone at, at Sidefoot. Sidefoot.com. Um, you should you should do that right now. Why not? I love the Sidefoot. I like I love. I didn't even you tell said. you that. No, never. I'm so happy. I know that. <laughs> That's so good. It's fucking so fucking miserable. good. Yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> swollen right swollen ankle side foot. <laughs> swollen. My nickname in college was Pops, and that was because I fucking had to take care of three other idiot baseball players. So they called. I was like Grandpa. I was. They called me Pops. So. uh Thank you so much, Sean Case, for being here. Look for Sean in anywhere you can find him. I'm definitely going to check out the Mayor's Office podcast. With all the names that you say. And real quick before we go, you had Todd Frazier on or whatever. You were talking yes, about Todd Frazier. Frazier was so good. I know, I, like, we're Jersey guys, so he played Tom's River. They went to they won the Little League World Series. He played for the played for the Reds, played for the Yankees. I remember watching him. And you're talking to me. He's like, hold on, i got to change a poopy diaper. <laughs> so you're right in the middle of fucking talking to him, and he's changing him. I was like, I love this. I Like, this guy that we looked up to that remembered, and he's changing. It's so real, yeah. It's amazing. He's like, you got a poopy on the body. It's fucking sad. It was awesome. Everybody, thank you for listening. Go a step further than you thought you can go. We'll see you next time on Building Men.